Uh, isn't it great to be at a baptism? Isn't it great to have that wonderful symbol of uh, what God has done for us in washing us clean by Jesus and also the symbol of the gift of his Holy Spirit? Uh, and so now I'm going to pray that God's Holy Spirit will be at work through his word in us tonight. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our sister Dana and we thank you for the joy it is uh, to witness this symbol of what you have done in her by your spirit, how you have convicted her of the truth of the gospel and you have led her to put her faith in Jesus and so find salvation in him. And so we pray now that as we look to your word ourselves together tonight, uh, that you will do that work by your spirit in us, that you will convict us of the truth of your word and where we need to repent, you will lead us to repentance where we need to be encouraged, you will encourage us where we need to be spurred on, you will spur us on. And so, Father, we pray now uh, that you will help us to concentrate even despite the heat today so that we might understand your word correctly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You want to open your Bibles up to the first reading tonight, to Mark chapter 11 and 12. That's where we're uh, up to in our studies. And we'll get underway. Do you remember back uh, in December, I, I don't have a very long memory, but do you remember back in December, uh, that mini cyclone came through Kernel? Do you remember that? Where the, the funny thing was that day, uh, there was a storm here and it was a big storm, but I didn't think anything else of it. You know, there was a bit of thunder, a bit of lightning, heavy winds and rains and all that sort of stuff. But then I turned on the six o'clock news and I see this place with, you know, roofs off and uh, electricity wires down and cars all in chaos and all that sort of thing. And you think that's got to be North Queensland, doesn't it? You know, that, that's where they have Cyclone Yazi and those sort of things. But then it said it was Kernel, and it's really weird when you think that that's only, I don't know how many kilometres, maybe 15 or 20 kilometres from where I was just sitting there thinking, oh, there's a bit of rain today. And then this cyclone went through. And I sort of think, as I was reading Mark's Gospel this week, that that's a bit like what it was like in Jerusalem, in this, these passages we're looking at in Mark's Gospel. If you were in Jerusalem, you knew there was a storm in town. You knew you were hearing the thunder, you were seeing the lightning, you were, you were feeling the heavy winds, you knew Jesus was causing chaos. But at the temple, he was like a cyclone, except he didn't have a pretty name like Tracy or Yazi or that's like, why do we always give our cyclones ladies' names? I don't understand that. But anyway, he didn't. This was cyclone Jesus. And do you remember our passage last week? If you weren't here last week, just flick back in your Bible to chapter 11. And last week we saw how Jesus went into the temple like a cyclone and just caused chaos. So he overturned all the tables and the money scattered all over the floor. He said, I have this image that he led all the animals. They were selling loose and they were just sort of running around the court of the temple. And then when he left, I sort of think the religious leaders, the chief priests, the Pharisees, those sort of guys, must have just sort of taken a deep breath. And you know when you, you see the pictures on television, you see the people just there, standing stunned after the cyclone's gone through, just surveying the carnage. That's what they would have been like, looking at their temple and saying, what has he done? This is awful. And then the next day, though, it was like their worst nightmare because there he is again, standing in the temple. And that's where we're up to at the end of chapter 11. So come with me into it uh, because he'd gone out of town. He'd gone to Bethany, which is about two miles out of Jerusalem. But now the next morning he's come back in and he's come back to the temple. And so they went to confront him. All the leaders got together, the chief priests, the scribes, that is the Pharisees and the elders. The interesting thing is all of those people hated each other. 
They all hated each other. The only thing that could get them together was just how much they hated Jesus. That was the only thing that sort of bound them together. Sort of like rugby league followers and manly, you know, that sort of thing. It's the only thing that bound them together. Sorry, there's a manly fan up there who just walked out on us. But anyway, no. But anyway, look at what they said to him. Chapter 11, verse 28. They said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? You see what they're asking, can't you? They're sort of saying, hang on, this is our temple. And you're just a carpenter from Nazareth. What gives you the right to come in here and cause chaos? What gives you the right to come in and turn over all the tables and scatter everyone and call us a den of thieves? You know, this is our temple. This isn't your place. Now, Jesus could have said, and this is sort of, if I was writing the gospel, how I would make it up if it was me, Jesus could have said, well, I'll tell you whose authority, God's authority, because I'm the son of God, so get lost. That would be what Phil Colgan would do, which is why I'm not the Messiah. But you see, Jesus doesn't do that. He could have said, I'm the son of God. There's my authority for you. Take it. But instead, he turns the question back on them. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. He's saying, if you answer my question, I'll answer yours. That's fair. So verse 30, he says, was John's baptism from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now he's talking about John the Baptist at this point. John the Baptist came through just before Jesus and had a massive impact. John the Baptist was bigger than the Beatles. He he was huge in Judea. And he came just before Jesus came and he had a very simple message. He said, repent. That was his message. Repent which means turn away from your sin and turn back to God. So when people got baptised by John, it was different to the baptism we had here. It was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism saying, I have repented from my sins and now I'm ready for forgiveness when God comes. That was the baptism that John preached. So he was saying, turn away from your sin, turn away from your corruption. And he was particularly harsh on the religious leaders. He was particularly harsh on these guys at the temple. But the common people flocked to him. He was huge. He was massive. Thousands of people were baptized by John as a symbol of their repentance. And so as I say, in terms of the common people, it was unanimous. John was a prophet. He was sent by God. He was like Elijah or Jeremiah or one of those great ones from the Old Testament. But the religious leaders hated him with a passion because he attacked them and he attacked their corruption, you know, and just like Jesus was doing now. So Jesus says to them, well, what about John? Let's have a chat about John. Where did he get his authority from? By what power did he have to to say these things? He said, did it come from heaven? That is, was he from God? Or or did it come from men? That is, was he a fraud? So what's your answer? Well, at this point, they're caught between a rock and a hard place. Have you ever been in that situation where whichever way you go, you lose? Well, that's the situation there in here. Look at verse 31. They began to argue among themselves, if we say from heaven, well, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? So you see the problem? They they, they knew, well, if we say he gets his authority from God, then Jesus will say, well, why didn't you listen to him and do what he says? Why didn't you go and get baptized by him? If you think he was a prophet, why did you ignore him and reject him and all of that? But on the other hand, look at verse 32, but if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone else thought, that John was a genuine prophet. See, they couldn't say what they wanted to say, 
which was John was a fraud, we didn't like him, we didn't listen to him, because the people loved John and all the people would have turned on, it would have been like a lynching in the temple. The people would have said, no, 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 and run them out of town. So they're in a catch-22. And so they answer with the classic answer that everyone gives when they know they've been caught out but they don't want to admit it. Do you see it there in verse 33? I don't know. They knew what they wanted to say. They, they, didn't, they knew they thought John was a fraud or they thought he was a prophet who they'd ignored. But it's the coward's answer. And so Jesus says to them, if you have not got the guts to stand up and say what you believe about John the Baptist, if you haven't got the guts to share your opinion on John, well, I'm not going to answer your question either. I'm not going to tell you where my authority comes from. You can work it out for yourself. So verse 33, look at it again. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What's Jesus doing here? What he's doing is, is he is using John the Baptist to make a point about himself. There is no middle ground. John the Baptist is either a prophet or he is a liar. There's no I don't knows. That's not a legitimate answer. I don't know is for cowards. That's what Jesus is saying to them. And the same way, Jesus is either the Lord or he's a liar. There's no middle ground with Jesus. There's no sitting on the fence with Jesus. These Jewish leaders were the first people in history to be caught on the horns of the dilemma about Jesus that every person is caught on. And that is you have to make a decision about him. You can't ignore Jesus. You can't have a bet each way on Jesus. You can't sort of come down that middle line and say, yeah, he's a nice guy and now I'm going to ignore him. Agnosticism about Jesus is not a legitimate position. Jesus claimed that his authority came from heaven. That was his claim. In fact, he claimed to be God in the flesh, the son of God on earth, which means the only sane responses to Jesus are to say, yes, he is telling the truth. He is the Lord, and so I'm going to give my life in worship of him. I'm going to give everything to him and serve him with everything I have, or to reject him and to say, no, 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 he's a fraud, and so I'll write him off. But Jesus has no time for the person who says, I don't know. I want to say to you, if you really don't know, if you're here tonight and you don't know about Jesus, if you're really not certain, then drop everything and work it out. Because there is nothing more important than that. Don't go to work tomorrow. Skip uni, skip school. I don't care. You're gonna, don't tell your teachers I said if you're at school. But you, but you get the point I'm making. This is the most important decision there is. And Jesus doesn't let you have that middle road. Jesus says, I'm either the Lord or I'm a liar. So if you don't know, then ask your questions. Keep me here till midnight asking me question after question and see if we can answer them together. Read your Bible. Do the Christianity Explained course we advertise all the time because your eternity depends on it. It's not sane to walk away and say, I'll just, I'll think about it later. That's just not a legitimate option. The only sane thing to do with Jesus is to work it out one way or the other. Well, let's get back into our passage because the conversation didn't end there. I love how Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you by what, but where my authority comes from. And then he tells them a story that tells them where his authority comes from. But that's what he does. He takes the chance to tell them a parable 
a story with a meaning and it really does give them the answer. Look from verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press and built a watchtower. Now for us, we're thinking this sounds like a nice story about vineyards. I wonder if they're going to have wine tasting there or something. I don't know. You know. But straight away here, these Jewish leaders weren't thinking this is a nice story about a vineyard because they knew their Old Testaments much better than we know our Old Testament, sadly. And they straight away said, hang on, Isaiah 5 says God planted a vineyard and then he built a fence around it and then he had a wine press and then he put a watchtower up. So straight away they're thinking, hang on, what's Jesus saying? Is he talking about Isaiah 5 here? And in Isaiah 5, God said, Israel, you are my vineyard, but you haven't been a very good vineyard. Instead of making juicy grapes that we can make lovely wine out of, you make like withered grapes that are sour and tasteless. And the message of Isaiah was, if you don't repent, Israel, God will come and he will burn the vineyard. He'll rip out the vines. It'll be the end. It was a message of judgment. So straight away here, these Jewish leaders are saying, what's Jesus saying to us? Is he saying what Isaiah said all those years ago? And Isaiah 5 was a message of judgment. So they're thinking, is this a message of judgment on us? So you see here, they're not sitting around wondering, why is Jesus talking about vineyards? They know what he's talking about and they know who he's talking about. He's talking about them. So let's go on, the end of verse 1. Then he, that is the owner of the vineyard, then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from the farmers. But they took him, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another slave to them and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Now, the beauty of a story like this is, is when you sort of make it a story, everyone says, this is terrible. So even these guys who know he's talking about them, at this point they're sort of thinking, what a terrible thing to do. As if you would ever treat the owner of the property you work on like that when he sends his servant, as if you would do that. See, what it does is it creates an emotional reaction in them. And it removes all excuses. Even the religious leaders could see that, of course, you'd be angry at these tenants who did this. You you can't argue they're in the right. But then Jesus goes on. He says, the owner doesn't stop sending people. Look at verse 5. Then he sent another and they killed that one. He also sent many others. They beat some and they killed some. Now, all the people there knew that Jesus was not talking about farming and land rights and everything like that. They knew that's not what he was talking about. They knew this is a history lesson. They knew this is the history of God's people in a little story. What is that noise? It's a message of judgment. Sorry, John. No, anyway. Now, they knew this was a history lesson. Sorry, I just had an image of that was a reversing truck coming through. Anyway, but... uh, (laughs) But uh, there you go. That happened to me once and I was preaching and a phone was ringing in the front pew and I thought, who hasn't turned their phone off? And they're like, oh, that's my phone ringing. So there you go. But anyway, so it happens to the best of us. Anyway, let's go back to it. See, they knew this was a history lesson. This is what he's giving them. This is exactly what they had done, the leaders of Israel over 2,000 years. This is what they had done to every prophet God had sent. If you read your Old Testament, there is not one prophet who came with a message and Israel said, what a wonderful message, let's respond in faith. 
they tended to belt them up and kick them out. So Elijah got sort of kicked out into the wilderness. Jeremiah, Isaiah, every one of them got run out of town. And some of them were killed. And when he says he sent another and they killed him, he's just been talking about John the Baptist. And what did they do to John the Baptist? Well, they cut his head off and put it on a silver platter. See, they knew what Jesus was saying here and they didn't like it. But what he says next is even more outlandish and even more offensive. Look at verse 6. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they'll respect my son. Now, if this was just a story about a vineyard, then they would have said, surely, surely he won't. they won't treat the son the way they treated all the slaves and all the servants and all the other people he sent. Of course they won't. But they knew it wasn't a story. Because while Jesus doesn't ever say, I'm talking about myself here, they didn't need very much brains to work it out. At this point, Jesus is saying something so incredible, so blasphemous, that if it wasn't true, they would be right to stone him to death. You see, he was saying, I am not just a prophet, not just like Elijah or Jeremiah or Isaiah. I'm not even just the Messiah, the promised saviour king. I am the son of God and I have come to collect the rent. That's what he was saying to them. Now, we know the story. We know what's going to happen. There's not a person here who doesn't know the end of this story, I don't think. But if you were hearing it for the first time, I think at this point you would say, surely they'll repent now. Surely with the power of this story, and when he's saying, now the sun is here, surely they'll just drop to their knees and say, forgive us. We recognize you for who you are and we want to worship you and give you the honor you deserve. But Jesus knows they're not going to do that. And so at this point, the parable turns into a prophecy. And what he does is he now tells them exactly what they're going to do to him. Look at verse 7. But those tenant farmers said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And of course, that is exactly what they did a couple of days later. It's exactly what they did to Jesus. They took the son of God and they threw him out and they killed him. Now, usually Jesus' parables are really cryptic and hard to understand. Have you ever noticed that? I think I have more questions after church from people reading the parables of Jesus and they just come and say, I have no idea what this is saying. Can you please help me understand what this is saying? And often what Jesus does, he ends with a question and he doesn't answer it. And the idea is, now you go away and think about it. You go see if you can work out what I'm talking about. And then he says something like, let him who has ears to hear, hear. And so often we go, maybe I don't have ears to hear because I can't understand a word he's saying. You know, that sort of idea. But here he doesn't do that. Here he just says, I'm going to ask you a question and then I'm going to give you the answer straight away. Look at what he does at verse 9. He says, therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And it's a powerful question, isn't it? He's meant, it's like he's saying to you, if you owned a house... And the people who were renting it from you, whenever you sent an agent around to collect the rent, they belted him up and threw him out of the door. And then when you sent your son, they killed him. And then they smashed all the windows and tore all the doors off and spray painted all the walls. What would you do? And every person there says, I'd 
go and do something. <laughs> well, look at verse 9 again. Jesus says, he will come and destroy the farmers and give the vineyard to others. See, this point, they knew what Jesus was saying. Like we saw last week, Jesus was announcing judgment on the corrupt leadership and religion of Israel. God has let them get away with rejecting prophet after prophet after prophet and he has not judged them for it. But if they reject his son, then that's it. It's all over. But, and this is the wonder of this parable, that judgment is not the end. See, in Isaiah 5, he said, I'm just going to rip up the vineyard. And that's what he did when he sent them into exile in Babylon. He ripped up the vineyard. But here, Jesus says, God isn't going to destroy the vineyard. He's going to transfer the lease. That's what he's going to do. See, there will be new leaders now. You priests, you've had your time. You Jewish Pharisees, you've had your day. It's over for you. Now it will be the 12 apostles who lead this new vineyard as they follow Jesus. And the gates of the vineyard will open up and we'll find new people to come in. It'll be new people, not just Jews, but Gentiles. People from every tribe, every nation, every tongue on earth. And the basis of acceptance into God's vineyard, what will it be? Your response to his son. And at this point, Jesus quotes Psalm 118 to them, which is the psalm that was read for us just before I spoke. Uh, it's, but if you, for those who've been here over the last few weeks, it's the same psalm they chanted as Jesus came into Jerusalem. So look at verse 10. He says, haven't you read this scripture? And then he quotes Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Do you ever put together Ikea furniture? Who's ever put together Ikea furniture? Whenever, for some reason, whenever I put together Ikea furniture, I get to the end and it looks like it's done and then I look and there's another piece still lying there on the floor. Have you ever had that experience? And you're like, well, that piece doesn't seem to go anywhere. When they built the temple, so what Psalm 118 shows, when Solomon's temple was built, they, they put all the stones together to build this wonderful building and then at the, and as they were building it, there was this funny piece and it didn't look like it fitted anywhere. It didn't go with the architectural plans. And so they put it over there and rejected it and said that's, that's not worthy to be part of God's building. But when they got to the end, they discovered that piece, that strange piece that was a different shape, was actually the piece they needed to lock it all together, was the piece that, that made the whole building work. And Jesus is saying, well, you know, they weren't really talking about that temple made of stone. That psalm was getting you ready for me. He says, you are going to reject me like that stone. You think I don't fit in. You think I'm not what you need. And in fact, you're going to kill me. You're going to get rid of me. But actually, you'll eventually see that I am the one who has come from God. I am the one you need. And of course, he doesn't expand it out here. But it is when God raises him from the dead that they realize the stone they had rejected was actually God's savior and their Lord. That's when people could see the man they had nailed to a cross was actually doing it to save them. But of course, by this point, their eyes are just blind with anger. 
And there is no way they were changing their opinion of Jesus. And the only reason they didn't kill him then and there was because of the crowds all around them. And they knew that if they tried to kill Jesus, the crowds would have had none of it. So that brings the story to an end. So what are we to take away from this passage? Well, I've got three short points as we finish. The first point I want to make is, despite this parable being a message of judgment, that's what it is, we here should be incredibly thankful. That's the first point I want to make. Why should we be thankful? Well, we should be thankful that the gates of the vineyard have been thrown open to people like us. See, in some senses, this passage is a history lesson for us. It's a history of how God's people went from being centered on one nation, the Jews in Israel, and open up to the whole world so that people from every tribe, nation, and tongue could come and know Jesus. So unless you are a Jew here, unless you're someone from a Jewish background, if you're a Gentile like me, then we should be incredibly thankful that Jesus has opened the vineyard up to us. But secondly, and a more somber message, I think the second thing this passage says to us is we should be careful that we do not reject God's word like they rejected God's word when it came to them. The fundamental sin that Jesus was calling out in the Jewish leaders of that time, the fundamental sin was a failure to listen to God and his word. That was their sin. A failure to listen to God when he sent his prophets and then finally when he sent his son. And it reminds me of that awfully chilling warning to Christians in the book of Hebrews where it says, do not harden your hearts like those Israelites did all those years ago. Just take out your outline, your sermon outline with me. And I've printed a passage from Hebrews chapter 3 on it. Follow along with me. It says, and it's talking to Christians. It says, watch out brothers and sisters so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. He's talking to Christians there. He's talking to us gathered here. And he's warning us. He's saying, don't be like those people. Don't be like those Jews who Jesus was speaking to. Don't be someone who presumes on God. You are here tonight and you know Jesus. You've heard the revelation of the Son. He's saying, so do not harden your heart to it. And don't harden your heart to his word. Keep encouraging one another every day so that we don't walk away from God and his promises like they did. Make sure that we are still trusting in Jesus when he returns or when we go to be with him. Which leads to my third and final point. And the big takeaway really from this passage is the reminder that it is a person's response to Jesus that decides everything. Every other decision we make in life is irrelevant compared to the decision we make about the Son of God. Our response to Jesus decides everything. God does not have a lot of time for people who put on a religious front, for people who say, I go to church, for false shows of piety. He got plenty of that from the Old Testament people of God. 
You got plenty of that from the chief priests and the Pharisees. God says, I do not care about that. What I care about is you and the decision you make about my son. That's all I care about. Will you believe in my son? Will you listen to my son? Will you follow my son? That is the question he asks every person. So I want to say to you tonight, if you are someone who does not yet believe in Jesus, I want to say, well, what are you going to do about it tonight? Tonight. What are your questions? Ask them and have them answered, but make a decision. And it's the question we need to ask every person out there as well. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with the Son of God? Will you believe in him? Will you listen to him? And will you follow him? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for that wonderful news that you have opened up the gates of your vineyard to all people, to people like us, to anyone who would believe in Jesus. And Father, we thank you that by coming to Jesus and believing him, we can find salvation and a place in your kingdom. But Father, help us not to be like the chief priests and the Pharisees. Help us not to be people who harden our hearts to your word. Instead, we pray that we might encourage one another daily so that we keep trusting in Jesus. And if there is any person here tonight who does not yet trust in Christ, we pray that tonight might be the night where they ask their questions and find their answers. And for all of us, help us to share Jesus with a world that so desperately needs to know him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.